Chapter Two of Daniel Boone by John S. C. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter Two Daniel Boone, His Parentage, and His Early Adventures. It was but a narrow fringe upon the sea coast of North America, which was thus far occupied by the European immigrants. Even this edge of the continent was so vast in its extent, from the southern capes of Florida to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, that these colonial settlements were far separated from each other. They constituted but little dots in the interminable forest. The surges of the Atlantic beating upon their eastern shores, and the majestic wilderness sweeping in its sublime solitude behind them on the west. Here, the painted Indians pursued their game while watching anxiously the encroachments of the pale faces. The cry of the panther, the growling of the bear, and the howling of the wolf were music to the settlers compared with the war-hoop of the savage, which often startled the inmates of the lonely cabins and consigned them to that sleep from which there is no earthly waking. The Indians were generally hostile, and being untutored savages, they were as merciless as demons in their revenge. The mind recoils from the contemplation of the tortures to which they often expose their captives, and one cannot but wonder that the Almighty Father could have allowed such agony to be inflicted upon any of his creatures. Notwithstanding the general desire of the colonial authorities to treat the Indians with justice and kindness, there were unprincipled adventurers crowding all the colonies, whose wickedness no laws could restrain. They robbed the Indians, insulted their families, and inflicted upon them outrages which goaded the poor savages to desperation. In their unintelligent vengeance, they could make no distinction between the innocent and the guilty. On the 10th of October, 1717, a vessel containing a number of immigrants arrived at Philadelphia, a small but flourishing settlement upon the banks of the Delaware. Among the passengers, there was a man named George Boone, with his wife and eleven children, nine sons and two daughters. He had come from Exeter, England, and was lured to the New World by the cheapness of land. He had sufficient property to enable him to furnish all his sons with ample farms in America. The Delaware, above Philadelphia, was at that time a silent stream flowing sublimely through the almost unbroken forest. Here and there a bold settler had felled the trees, and in the clearing had reared his log hut upon the river banks. Occasionally the birch canoe of an Indian hunter was seen passing rapidly from cove to cove, and occasionally a little cluster of indian wigwams graced some picturesque and sunny exposure for the indians manifested much taste in the location of their villages george boone ascended this solitary river about twenty miles above philadelphia where he purchased upon its banks an extensive territory consisting of several hundred acres it was near the present city of bristol in what is now called bucks county to this tract sufficiently large for a township, he gave the name of Exeter, in memory of the home he had left in England. Here, aided by the strong arms of his boys, he reared a commodious log cabin. It must have been an attractive and happy home. The climate was delightful, the soil fertile, supplying him, with but little culture, with an ample supply of corn, and the most nutritious vegetables. 
before his door rolled the broad expanse of the delaware abounding with fish of delicious flavor his boys with hook and line could at any time in a few moments supply the table with a nice repast with the unerring rifle they could always procure game in great variety and abundance the Indians, won by the humanity of William Penn, were friendly, and their occasional visits to the cabin contributed to the enjoyment of its inmates. On the whole, a more favored lot in life could not well be imagined. There was unquestionably far more happiness in this log cabin of the settler, on the silent waters of the Delaware, than could be found in any of the castles or palaces of England, France, or Spain. George Boone had one son on whom he conferred the singular name of Squire. His son married a young woman in the neighborhood by the name of Sarah Morgan, and surrounded by his brothers and sisters, he raised his humble home in the beautiful township which his father had purchased. Before leaving England, the family, religiously inclined, had accepted the Episcopal form of Christian worship. But in the New World, far removed from the institutions of the gospel, and allured by the noble character and influence of William Penn, they enrolled themselves in the Society of Friends. In the record of monthly meetings of this society, we find it stated that George Boone was received to its communion on the 31st day of the 10th month in the year 1717. It is also recorded that his son, Squire Boone, was married to Sarah Morgan, on the twenty-third day of the seventh month, 1720. The records of the meetings also show the number of their children and the periods of their birth. By this, it appears that their son Daniel, the subject of this memoir, was born on the twenty-second day of eighth month, 1734. It seems that Squire Boone became involved in difficulties with the Society of Friends for allowing one of his sons to marry out of meeting. He was, therefore, disowned, and perhaps on this account he subsequently removed his residence to North Carolina, as we shall hereafter show. His son Daniel, from earliest childhood, developed a peculiar and remarkably interesting character. He was silent, thoughtful, of pensive temperament, yet far from gloomy, never elated, never depressed. He exhibited from his earliest years such an insensibility to danger, as to attract the attention of all who knew him. Though affectionate and genial in disposition, never morose or moody, he still loved solitude, and seemed never so happy as when entirely alone. His father remained in his home upon the Delaware, until Daniel was about ten years of age. Various stories are related of his adventures in these early years, which may or may not be entirely authentic. It makes but little difference. These anecdotes, if only founded on facts, show at least the estimation in which he was regarded and the impression which his character produced in these days of childhood before he was ten years old he would take his rifle and plunge boldly into the depths of the illimitable forest he seemed by instinct possessed of the skill of the most experienced hunter so that he never became bewildered or in danger of being lost there were panthers bears and wolves in those forests but of them he seemed not to have the slightest fear his skill as a marksman became quite unerring. Not only raccoons, squirrels, partridges, and other small game were the result of his hunting expeditions, but occasionally even the fierce panther fell before his rifle ball. 
from such frequent expeditions he would return silent and tranquil with never a word of boasting in view of exploits of which a veteran hunter might be proud indeed his love of solitude was so great that he reared for himself a little cabin in the wilderness three miles back from the settlement here he would go all alone without even a dog for companion his trusty rifle his only protection at his camp fire on the point of his ramrod he would cook the game which he obtained in abundance and upon his bed of leaves would sleep in sweetest enjoyment lulled by the wind through the treetops and by the cry of the night bird and of the wild beasts roaming around in subsequent life he occasionally spoke of these hours as seasons of unspeakable joy the education of young boone was necessarily very defective there were no schools then established in those remote districts of log cabins but it so happened that an irishman of some little education strolled into that neighborhood and squire boone engaged him to teach for a few months his children and those of some others of the adjacent settlers these hardy emigrants met with their axes in a central point in the wilderness and in a few hours constructed a rude hut of logs for a schoolhouse here young boone was taught to read and perhaps to write this was about all the education he ever received probably the confinement of the schoolroom was to him unendurable the forest was his congenial home hunting the business of his life though thus uninstructed in the learning of books there were other parts of practical education of infinitely more importance to him in which he became adept his native strength of mind keen habits of observation and imperturbable tranquillity under whatever perils or reverses gave him skill in the life upon which he was to enter which the teaching of books alone could not confer no marksman could surpass him in the dexterity with which with his bullet he would strike the head of a nail at the distance of many yards no indian hunter or warrior could with more sagacity trace his steps through the pathless forest detecting the footsteps of a retreating foe or search out the hiding place of the panther or the bear in these hunting excursions the youthful frame of daniel became inured to privation hardship endurance taught to rely upon his own resources he knew not what it was to be lonely for an hour in the darkest night and in the remotest wilderness when the storm raged most fiercely although but a child he felt peaceful happy and entirely at home about the year seventeen forty eight the date is somewhat uncertain squire boone with his family emigrated seven hundred miles farther south and west to a place called holman's ford on the yadkin river in north carolina the yadkin is a small stream in the northwest part of the state a hundred years ago this was indeed a howling wilderness it is difficult to imagine what could have induced the father of a family to abandon the comparatively safe and prosperous settlements on the bank of the delaware to plunge into the wilderness of these pathless solitudes several hundred miles from the atlantic coast daniel was then about sixteen years of age of the incidents of their long journey through the wood on foot with possibly a few pack horses for there were no wagon roads whatever we have no record the journey must probably have occupied several weeks occasionally cheered by sunshine and again drenched by storms there were nine children in the family 
at the close of the weary pilgrimage of a day through such narrow trails at which the indian or the buffalo had made through the forest or over the prairies they were compelled to build a cabin at night with logs and the bark of trees to shelter them from the wind and rain and at the camp fire to cook the game which they had shot during the day we can imagine that this journey must have been a season of unspeakable delight to daniel boone alike at home with the rifle and the hatchet never for a moment bewildered or losing his self-possession he could even unaided at any hour rear a sheltering hut for his mother and his sisters before which the camp-fire would blaze cheerily and their hunger would be appeased by the choicest viands from the game which his rifle had procured the spirit of adventure is so strong in most human hearts which luxurious indulgence has not enervated that it is not improbable that this family enjoyed far more in this romantic excursion through an unexplored wilderness than those now enjoy who in a few hours traverse the same distance in the smooth rolling rail cars indeed fancy can paint many scenes of picturesque beauty which we know that the reality must have surpassed it is the close of a lovely day a gentle breeze sweeps through the treetops from the northwest the trail through the day has led along the banks of a crystal mountain stream sparkling with trout the path is smooth for the moccasined feet the limbs inured to action experienced no weariness the axes of the father and the sons speedily construct a camp open to the south and perfectly sheltered on the roof and on the sides by the bark of trees the busy fingers of the daughters have in the meantime spread over the floor a soft and fragrant carpet of evergreen twigs the mother is preparing supper of trout from the stream and the fattest of wild turkeys or partridges or tender cuts of venison which the rifles of her husband or sons have procured voracious appetites render the repast far more palatable than the choicest viands which were ever spread in the banqueting halls of versailles or windsor waterfowl of gorgeous plumage sport in the stream unintimidated by the approach of man the plaintive songs of the forest birds float in the evening air on the opposite side of the stream herds of deer and buffalo crop the rich herbage of the prairie which extends far away till it is lost in the horizon of the south daniel retires from the converse of the cabin to an adjoining eminence where silently and rapturously he gazes upon the scene of loveliness spread out before him such incidents must have often occurred even in the dark and tempestuous night with the storm surging through the treetops and the rain descending in floods in their sheltered camp illumined by the flames of their night fire souls capable of appreciating the sublimity of such scenes must have experienced exquisite delight it is pleasant to reflect that the poor man in his humble cabin may often be the recipient of much more happiness than the lord finds in his castle or the king in his palace no details are given respecting the arrival of this family on the banks of the yadkin or of their habits of life while there we simply know that they were far away in the untrodden wilderness in the remotest frontiers of civilization bands of indians were roving around them but even if hostile so long as they had only bows and arrows the settler in his log hut which was a fortress and with his death-dealing rifle was comparatively safe 
here the family dwelt for several years probably in the enjoyment of abundance and with ever-increasing comforts the virgin soil even poorly tilled furnished them with the corn and vegetables they required while the forest supplied the table with game thus the family occupying the double position of the farmer and the hunter lived in the enjoyment of all the luxuries which both of those callings could afford here daniel boone grew up to manhood his love of solitude and of nature led him on long hunting excursions from which he often returned laden with furs the silence of the wilderness he brought back with him to his home and though his placid features ever bore a smile he had but few words to interchange with neighbors or friends he was a man of affectionate but not of passionate nature it would seem that other immigrants were lured to the banks of the yadkin for here after a few years young boone fell in love with the daughter of his father's neighbor and that daughter rebecca bryan became his bride he thus left his father's home and with his axe speedily erected for himself and wife a cabin we may presume at some distance from sight or sound of any other house there from noise and tumult far daniel boone established himself in the life of solitude to which he was accustomed and which he enjoyed it appears that his marriage took place about the year seventeen fifty five the tide of immigration was still flowing in an uninterrupted stream towards the west the population was increasing throughout this remote region and the axe of the settler began to be heard on the streams tributary to the yadkin daniel boone became restless he loved the wilderness and its solitude and was annoyed by the approach of human habitations bringing to him customs with which he was unacquainted and exposing him to embarrassments from which he would gladly escape the mode of life practiced by those early settlers in the wilderness is well known the log house usually consisted of but one room with a fireplace of stones at the end these houses were often very warm and comfortable presenting in the interior with a bright blazing on the hearth a very cheerful aspect their construction was usually as follows straight smooth logs about a foot in diameter cut of the proper length and so notched at the ends as to be held very firmly together were thus placed one above the other to the height of about ten feet the interstices were filled with clay which soon hardened rendering the walls comparatively smooth and alike impervious to wind or rain other logs of straight fiber were split into clapboards one or two inches in thickness with which they covered the roof if suitable wood for this purpose could not be found the bark of trees was used with an occasional thatching of the long grass of the prairies logs about eighteen inches in diameter were selected for the floor these were easily split in halves and with the convex side buried in the earth and the smooth surface uppermost joined closely together by a slight trimming with axe or adze presented a very firm and even attractive surface for the feet in the center of the room four auger holes were bored in the logs about three inches in diameter stakes were driven firmly into these holes upon which were placed two pieces of timber with the upper surfaces hewn smooth thus constructing a table in one corner of the cabin four stakes were driven in a similar way about eighteen inches high with forked tops upon these two saplings were laid with smooth pieces of bark stretched across 
these were covered with grass or dried leaves upon which was placed with the fur upwards the well-tanned skin of the buffalo or the bear thus quite a luxurious bed was constructed upon which there was often enjoyed as sweet sleep as perhaps is ever found on beds of down in another corner some rude shelves were placed upon which appeared a few articles of tin and ironware upon some buck horns over the door was always placed the rifle ever loaded and ready for use a very intelligent immigrant dr doddridge gives the following graphic account of his experience in such a log cabin as we have described in the remote wilderness when he was but a child his father with a small family had penetrated these trackless wilds and in the midst of their sublime solitude had reared his lonely cabin he writes my father's family was small and he took us all with him the indian meal which he brought was expended six weeks too soon so that for that length of time we had to live without bread the lean venison and the breast of wild turkeys we were taught to call bread i remember how narrowly we children watched the growth of the potato tops pumpkin and squash vines hoping from day to day to get something to answer in the place of bread how delicious was the taste of the young potatoes when we got them what a jubilee when we were permitted to pull the young corn for roasting ears still more so when it had acquired sufficient hardness to be made into johnny cake by the aid of a tin grater the furniture of the table consisted of a few pewter dishes plates and spoons but mostly of wooden bowls and trenchers and noggins if these last were scarce gourds and hard-shell squashes made up the deficiency i well remember the first time i ever saw a teacup and saucer my mother died when i was six or seven years of age my father then sent me to maryland to go to school at bedford the tavern at which my uncle put up was a stone house and to make the changes still more complete it was plastered on the inside both as to the walls and ceiling on going into the dining room i was struck with astonishment at the appearance of the house i had no idea that there was any house in the world that was not built of logs but here i looked around and could see no logs and above i could see no joists whether such a thing had been made by the hands of man or had grown so of itself i could not conjecture i had not the courage to inquire anything about it when supper came on my confusion was worse confounded a little cup stood in a bigger one with some brownish looking stuff in it which was neither milk hominy nor broth what to do with these little cups and the spoons belonging to them i could not tell but i was afraid to ask anything concerning the use of them daniel boone could see from the door of his cabin far away in the west the majestic ridge of the allegheny mountains many of the peaks rising six thousand feet into the clouds this almost impassable wall which nature had reared extended for hundreds of leagues along the atlantic coast parallel with that coast and at an average distance of one hundred and thirty miles from the ocean it divides the waters which flow into the atlantic from those which run into the mississippi the great chain consists of many spurs from fifty to two hundred miles in breadth and receives in different localities different names such as the cumberland mountains the blue ridge etc 
but few white men had ever as yet ascended these summits to cast a glance at the vast wilderness beyond the wildest stories were told around the cabin fires of these unexplored realms of the indian tribes wandering there of the forests filled with game of the rivers alive with fishes of the fertile plains the floral beauty the abounding fruit and the almost celestial clime these stories were brought to the settlers in the broken language of the indians and in the exaggerated tales of hunters who professed that in the chase they had from some pisca's summit gazed upon the splendors of this canaan of the new world thus far the settlers had rested contented with the seaboard region east of the alleghanies they had made no attempt to climb the summits of this great barrier or to penetrate its gloomy defiles a dense forest covered alike the mountain cliff and the rocky gorge indeed there were but few points at which even the foot of the hunter could pass this chain while daniel boone was residing in the congenial solitude of his hut on the banks of the yadkin with the grandeur of the wilderness all around him in which his soul delighted with his table luxuriously spread according to his tastes with venison bear's meat fat turkeys chickens from the prairie and vegetables from his garden with comfortable clothing of deerskin and such cloths as peddlers occasionally brought to his cabin door in exchange for furs he was quite annoyed by the arrival of a number of scotch families in his region bringing with them customs and fashions which to daniel boone were very annoying they began to cut down the glorious old forest to break up the green sward of the prairies to rear more ambitious houses than the humble home of the pioneer they assumed airs of superiority introduced more artificial styles of living and brought in the hitherto unknown vexation of taxes one can easily imagine how restive such a man as boone must have been under such innovations the sheriff made his appearance in the lonely hut the collection of the taxes was enforced by suits at law even daniel boone's title to his lands was called in question some of the newcomers claiming that their more legal grants lapped over upon the boundaries which boone claimed under these circumstances our pioneer became very anxious to escape from these vexations by an emigration farther into the wilderness day after day he cast wistful glances upon the vast mountain barrier piercing the clouds in the distant horizon beyond that barrier neither the sheriff nor the tax-gatherer were to be encountered his soul naturally incapable of fear experienced no dread and apprehension of indian hostilities or the ferocity of wild beasts even the idea of the journey through these sublime solitudes of an unexplored region was far more attractive to him than the tour of europe to a sated millionaire two or three horses would convey upon their backs all their household goods there were indian trails and streets so called made by the buffaloes as in large numbers they had followed each other selecting by a wonderful instinct their path from one feeding ground to another through cane brakes around morasses and over mountains through the most accessible defiles along these trails or streets boone could take his peaceful route without any danger of mistaking his way every mile would be opening to him new scenes of grandeur and beauty should night come or a storm set in a few hours labor with his axe would rear for him not only a comfortable but cheerful tent with its warm and sheltered interior 
with the campfire crackling and blazing before it. His wife and children not only afforded him all the society his peculiar nature craved, but each one was a helper, knowing exactly what to do in this picnic excursion through the wilderness. Wherever he might stop for the night, or for a few days, his unerring rifle procured for him viands which might tempt the appetite of the epicure. There are many even in civilized life who will confess that for them such an excursion would present attractions such as are not to be found in the banqueting halls at Windsor Castle or in the gorgeous saloons of Versailles. Daniel Boone, in imagination, was incessantly visiting the land beyond the mountains and longing to explore its mysteries. Whether he would find the ocean there, or an expanse of lakes and majestic rivers, or boundless prairies, or the unbroken forest, he knew not. Whether the region were crowded with Indians, and if so, whether they would be found friendly or hostile, and whether game roamed there in greater variety and in larger abundance than on the Atlantic side of the Great Barrier, were questions as yet all unsolved. But these questions Daniel Boone pondered in silence, night and day. A gentleman, who nearly half a century ago visited one of these frontier dwellings, very romantically situated amidst the mountains of West Virginia, has given us a pencil sketch of the habitation which we here introduce. The account of the visit is also so graphic that we cannot improve it by giving it any language but its own. This settler had passed through the first and was entering upon the second stage of pioneer life. Towards the close of an autumnal day, when traveling through the thinly settled region of western Virginia, I came up with a substantial-looking farmer leaning on the fence by the roadside. I accompanied him to his house to spend the night. It was a log dwelling, and near it stood another log structure, about twelve feet square, the weaving shop of the family. On entering the dwelling, I found the numerous household all clothed in substantial garments of their own manufacture. The floor was unadorned by a carpet, and the room devoid of superfluous furniture. Yet they had all that necessity required for their comfort. One needs but little experience like this to learn how few are our real wants, how easily most luxuries of dress, furniture, and equipage can be dispensed with. Soon after my arrival, supper was ready. It consisted of fowls, bacon, hoe cake, and buckwheat cakes. Our beverage was milk and coffee, sweetened with maple sugar. Soon as it grew dark, my hostess took down a small candle mold for three candles, hanging from the wall on a framework just in front of the fireplace, in company with a rifle, long strings of dried pumpkins, and other articles of household property. On retiring, I was conducted to the room overhead, to which I ascended by stairs out of doors. My bedfellow was the county sheriff, a young man of about my own age, and as we lay together, a fine field was had for astronomical observations through the chinks of the logs. The next morning after rising, I was looking for the washing apparatus when he tapped me on the shoulder as a signal to accompany him to the brook in the rear of the house, in whose pure crystal waters we performed our morning ablutions. After breakfast, through the persuasion of the sheriff, I agreed to go across the country by his horse, he was on horseback, I on foot, bearing my knapsack. For six miles, our route lay through a pathless forest, on emerging from which we soon passed through the courthouse, 
the only village in the county, consisting of about a dozen log houses and the court building. Soon after, we came to a Methodist encampment. This was formed of three continuous lines, each occupying a side of a square, and about 100 feet in length. Each row was divided into six or ten cabins, with partitions between. The height of the rows on the inner side of the enclosed area was about ten feet, on the outer about six, to which the roof sloped shed-like. The door of each cabin opened on the inner side of the area, and at the back of each was a log chimney coming up even with the roof. At the upper extremity of the enclosure, formed by these three lines of cabins, was an open shed, a mere roof supported by posts, say thirty by fifty feet, in which was a coarse pulpit and log seats. A few tall trees were standing within the area, and many stumps scattered here and there. The whole establishment was in the depth of a forest, and wild and rude as can be well imagined. In many of these sparsely inhabited counties, there are no settled clergy, and rarely do the people hear any other than the Methodist preachers. Here is the itinerating system of Wesley exhibited in its full usefulness. The circuits are usually of three weeks' duration, in which the clergymen preach daily. Most of these preachers are energetic, devoted men, and often they endure great privations. After sketching the encampment, I came in a few moments to the dwelling of the sheriff. Close by it was a group of mountain men and women seated around a log cabin, about twelve feet square, ten high, and open at the top, into which these neighbors of my companion were casting ears of corn as fast as they could shuck them. Cheerfully they performed their task. The men were large and hearty, the damsels plump and rosy, and all dressed in good warm homespun. The sheriff informed me that he owned about 2,000 acres around his dwelling, and that his farm was worth about $1,000 or 50 cents an acre. I entered his log domicile, which was one story in height, about 20 feet square, and divided it into two small rooms without windows, or places to let in the light, except by a front and rear door. I soon partook of a meal in which we had a variety of luxuries, not omitting bear's meat. A blessing was asked at the table by one of the neighbors. After supper, the bottle, as usual at corn huskings, was circulated. The sheriff, learning that I was a Washingtonian, with the politeness of one of nature's gentlemen, refrained from urging me to participate. The men drank but moderately, and we all drew round the fire, the light of which was the only one we had. Hunting stories and kindred topics served to talk down the hours till bedtime. On awaking in the morning, I saw two women cooking breakfast in my bedroom, and three men seated over the fire watching the operation. After breakfast, I bade my host farewell, buckled on my knapsack, and left. In the course of two hours, I came to a cabin by the wayside. There being no gate, I sprang over the fence, entered the open door, and was received with a hearty welcome. It was a humble dwelling, the abode of poverty. The few articles of furniture were neat and pleasantly arranged. In the corner stood two beds, one hung with curtains, and both with coverlets of snowy white, contrasting with dingy log walls, rude furniture, and rough boarded floor of this, the only room in the dwelling. Around a cheerful fire was seated an interesting family group. In one corner, on the hearth, sat the mother, smoking a pipe. Next to her was a little girl in a small chair, holding a young kitten. 
in the opposite corner sat a venerable old man of herculean stature robed in a hunting shirt and with a countenance as majestic and impressive as that of a roman senator in the centre of the group was a young maiden modest and retiring not beautiful except in that moral beauty virtue gives she was reading to them from a little book she was the only one of the family who could read and she could do so but imperfectly in that small volume was the whole secret of the neatness and happiness found in this lonely cot that little book was the new testament the institution of camp meetings introduced with so much success by the methodists those noble pioneers of christianity seem to have been the necessary result of the attempt to preach to the sparsely settled population of a new country the following is said to be the origin of those camp meetings which have done incalculable good socially intellectually and religiously in the year seventeen ninety nine two men by the name of mcgee one a presbyterian the other a methodist set out on a missionary tour together to visit the log houses in the wilderness a meeting was appointed at a little settlement upon one of the tributaries of the ohio the pioneers flocked to the place from many miles around there was no church there and the meeting was necessarily held in the open air many brought their food with them and camped out thus the meeting with exhortation and prayer was continued in the night immense bonfires blazed illuminating the sublimities of the forest and the assembled congregation cut off from all the ordinary privileges of civilized life listened devoutly to the story of a savior's love this meeting was so successful in its results that another was appointed at a small settlement on the banks of a stream called muddy river the tidings spread rapidly through all the stations and farmhouses on the frontier it afforded these lonely settlers a delightful opportunity of meeting together they could listen for hours with unabated interest to the religious exercises the people assembled from a distance of forty or fifty miles around a vast concourse had met beneath the foliage of the trees the skies alone draped with clouds by day and adorned with stars by night the dome of their majestic temple the scene by night must have been picturesque in the extreme men women and children were there in homespun garb and being accustomed to camp life they were there in comfort strangers met and became friends many wives and mothers obtained rest and refreshment from their monotonous toils there is a bond in christ's discipleship stronger than any other and christians grasped hands in love pledging themselves anew to a holy life for several days and nights this religious festival was continued time could not have been better spent dwellers in the forest could not afford to take so long a journey merely to listen to one half hour's discourse these men and women were earnest and thoughtful in the solitude of their homes they had reflected deeply upon life and its issues when death occasionally visited their cabins it was a far more awful event than when death occurs in the crowded city where the hearse is every hour of every day passing through the streets these scenes of worship very deeply impressed the minds of the people they were not gospel hardened the gloom and silence of the forest alike still by night and by day the memory of the past with its few joys and many griefs the anticipations of the future with its unceasing struggles to terminate only in death the solemnity which rested on every countenance 
the sweet melody of the hymns the earnest tones of the preachers in exhortation and prayer all combined to present a scene calculated to produce a very profound impression upon the human mind at this meeting not only professed christians were greatly revived but not less than a hundred persons it was thought became disciples of the saviour another camp meeting was soon after appointed to meet on desha's creek a small stream flowing into the cumberland river the country was now becoming more populous and several thousand were assembled and thus the work went on multitudes being thus reached by the preached gospel who could not be reached in any other way life on the frontier was by no means devoid of its enjoyments as well as of its intense excitements it must have also been an exceedingly busy life there were no mills for cutting timber or grinding corn no blacksmith shops to repair the farming utensils there were no tanneries no carpenters shoemakers weavers every family had to do everything for itself the corn was pounded with a heavy pestle in a large mortar made by burning an excavation in a solid block of wood by means of these mortars the settlers in regions where saltpetre could be obtained made very respectable gunpowder in making cornmeal a grater was sometimes used consisting of a half circular piece of tin perforated with a punch from the concave side the ears of corn were rubbed on the rough edges and the meal fell through the holes on a board or cloth placed to receive it they also sometimes made use of a hand mill resembling those alluded to in the bible these consisted of two circular stones the lowest which was immovable was called the bedstone the upper one the runner two persons could grind together at this mill the clothing was all of domestic manufacture a fabric called linsey woolsey was most frequently in use and made the most substantial and warmest clothing it was made of flax and wool the former the warp the latter the filling every cabin almost had its rude loom and every woman was a weaver the men tanned their own leather a large trough was sunk in the ground to its upper edge bark was shaved with an axe and pounded with a mallet ashes were used for lime in removing the hair in the winter evenings the men made strong shoes and moccasins and the women cut out and made hunting shirts leggings and drawers hunting was a great source of amusement as well as a very exciting and profitable employment the boys were all taught to imitate the call of every bird and beast in the woods. The skill in imitation which they thus acquired was wonderful. Hidden in a thicket, they would gobble like a turkey and lure a whole flock of these birds within reach of their rifles. Bleeding like a fawn, they would draw the timid dam to her death. The moping owls would come in flocks attracted by the screech of the hunter, while the packs of wolves far away in the forest would howl in response to the hunter's cry the boys also rivaled the indians in the skill with which they would throw the tomahawk with a handle of a given length and measuring the distance with the eye they would throw the weapon with such accuracy that its keen edge would be sure to strike the object at which it was aimed running jumping wrestling were pastimes in which both boys and men engaged shooting at a mark was one of the most favorite diversions when a boy had attained the age of about twelve years, a rifle was usually placed in his hands. 
in the house or fort where he resided a porthole was assigned him where he was to do valiant service as a soldier in case of an attack by the indians every day he was in the woods hunting squirrels turkeys and raccoons thus he soon acquired extraordinary expertness with his gun the following interesting narrative is taken from Ramsey's Annals of Tennessee, which state was settled about the same time with Kentucky and with immigrants from about the same region. The settlement of Tennessee was unlike that of the present new country of the United States. Immigrants from the Atlantic cities and from most points in the western interior now embarked upon steamboats or other craft, and carrying with them all the conveniences and comforts of civilized life, indeed many of its luxuries are in a few days without toil danger or exposure transported to their new abodes and in a few months are surrounded with the appendages of home of civilization and the blessings of law and of society the wilds of minnesota and nebraska by the agency of steam or the stalwart arms of western boatmen are at once transformed into the settlements of a commercial and civilized people independence and st paul six months after they are laid off have their stores and their workshops their artisans and their mechanics the mantua maker and the tailor arrive in the same boat with the carpenter and the mason the professional man and the printer quickly follow in the succeeding year the piano the drawing-room the restaurant the billiard-table the church bell the village and the city in miniature are all found while the neighboring interior is yet a wilderness and a desert the town and comfort taste and urbanity are first the clearing the farmhouse the wagon road and the improved country second it was far different on the frontier of tennessee at first a single indian trail was the only entrance to the eastern border of it and for many years admitted only the hunter and the pack-horse it was not till the year seventeen seventy six that a wagon was seen in tennessee in consequence of the want of roads as well as of the great distance from the sources of supply the first inhabitants were without tools and of course without mechanics much more without the conveniences of living and the comforts of housekeeping luxuries were absolutely unknown salt was brought on pack-horses from augusta to richmond and readily commanded ten dollars a bushel the salt gourd in every cabin was considered a treasure the sugar maple furnished the only article of luxury on the frontier coffee and tea being unknown or beyond the reach of settlers sugar was seldom made and was used only for the sick or in the preparation of a sweetened dram at a wedding or on the arrival of a newcomer the appendages of the kitchen, the cupboard, and the table were scanty and simple. Iron was brought at great expense from the forages east of the mountains on pack-horses, and was sold at an enormous price. Its use was, for this reason, confined to the construction and repair of plows and other farming utensils. Hinges, nails, and fastenings of that material were seldom seen. The costume of the first settlers corresponded well with the style of their buildings and the quality of their furniture. The hunting shirt of the militiaman and the hunter was in general use. The rest of their apparel was in keeping with it, plain, substantial, and well adapted for comfort, use, and economy. The apparel of the pioneer's family was all homemade, and in a whole neighborhood there would not be seen at the first settlement of the country a single article of dress of foreign manufacture half the year in many families shoes were not worn 
Boots, a fur hat, and a coat, with buttons on each side, attracted the gaze of the beholder, and sometimes received censure or rebuke. A stranger from the old states chose to doff his ruffles, his broadcloth, and his queue, rather than endure the scoff and ridicule of the backwoodsman. The dwelling house on every frontier in Tennessee was the log cabin. A carpenter and a mason were not needed to build them much less the painter, the glazier, and the upholsterer. Every settler had, besides his rifle, no other instrument but an axe or hatchet and a butcher knife. A saw, an auger, a file, and a broad axe would supply a whole settlement and were used as common property in the erection of the log cabin. The labor and employment of a pioneer family were distributed in accordance with surrounding circumstances. To the men, it was assigned the duty of procuring subsistence, and materials for clothing, erecting the cabin in the station, opening and cultivating the farm, hunting the wild beasts, and repelling and pursuing the Indians. The women spun the flax, the cotton and the wool, wove the cloth, made them up, milked, churned, and prepared the food, and did their full share of the duties of housekeeping. Could there be happiness or comfort in such dwellings and such a state of society? To those who are accustomed to modern refinements, the truth appears like fable. The early occupants of log cabins were among the most happy of mankind. Exercise and excitement gave them health. They were practically equal. Common danger made them mutually dependent. Brilliant hopes of future wealth and distinction led them on. And as there was ample room for all, and as each newcomer increased individual and general security, there was little room for that envy, jealousy, and hatred which constitute a large portion of human misery in older societies. Never were the story, the joke, the song, and the laugh better enjoyed than upon the hewed blocks or puncheon stools around the roaring log fire of the early western settler. On the frontier, the diet was necessarily plain and homely, but exceedingly abundant and nutritive. The Goshen of America furnishes the richest milk and the most savory and delicious meats. In their rude cabins, with their scanty and inartificial furniture, no people ever enjoyed in wholesome food a greater variety or a superior quality of the necessaries of life. A writer of that day describes the sports of these pioneers of Kentucky. One of them consisted in driving the nail. A common nail was hammered into a target for about two-thirds of its length. The marksmen then took their stand at the distance of about forty paces. Each man carefully cleaned the interior of his gun, and then placed a bullet in his hand, over which he poured just enough powder to cover it. This was a charge. A shot which only came close to the nail was considered a very indifferent shot. Nothing was deemed satisfactory but striking the nail with the bullet fairly on the head. Generally, one out of three shots would hit the nail. Two nails were frequently needed before each man could get a shot. Barking of squirrels is another sport. I first witnessed, writes the one to whom we have above alluded, this manner of procuring squirrels while near the town of Frankfurt. The performer was the celebrated Daniel Boone, we walked out together and followed the rocky margins of the Kentucky River until we reached a piece of flat land, thickly covered with black walnuts, oaks, and hickories. Squirrels were seen gambling on every tree around us. My companion, Mr. Boone, a stout, hale, athletic man, dressed in a homespun hunting shirt, bare-legged and moccasined, carried a long and heavy rifle, 
which, as he was loading it, he said had proved efficient in all his former undertakings, and which he hoped would not fail on this occasion, as he felt proud to show me his skill. The gun was wiped, the powder measured, the ball patched with six hundred thread linen, and a charge sent home with a hickory rod. We moved not a step from the place, for the squirrels were so thick that it was unnecessary to go after them. Boone pointed to one of these animals, which had observed us, and was crouched on a tree about fifty paces distant, and bade me mark well where the ball should hit. He raised his piece gradually, until the head, or side of the barrel, was brought to a line with the spot he intended to strike. The whip-like report sounded through the woods, and along the hills, in repeated echoes, judge of my surprise when i perceived that the ball had hit the piece of bark immediately underneath the squirrel and shivered it into splinters the concussion produced by which had killed the animal and sent it whirling through the air as if it had been blown up by the explosion of a powder magazine boone kept up his firing and before many hours had elapsed we had procured as many squirrels as we wished since that first interview with the veteran Boone, I have seen many other individuals perform the same feat. The snuffing of a candle with a ball I first had an opportunity of seeing near the banks of Green River, not far from a large pigeon roost, to which I had previously made a visit. I had heard many reports of guns during the early part of a dark night, and knowing them to be rifles, I went towards the spot to ascertain the cause. On reaching the place, I was welcomed by a dozen tall, stout men, who told me they were exercising for the purpose of enabling them to shoot in the night at the reflected light from the eyes of a deer or wolf by torchlight. A fire was blazing near, the smoke of which rose curling among the thick foliage of the trees. At a distance which rendered it scarcely distinguishable, stood a burning candle, which in reality was only fifty yards from the spot on which we all stood. One man was within a few yards of it to watch the effect of the shots, as well as to light the candle, should it chance to go out, or to replace it, should the shot cut it across. Each marksman shot in his turn. Some never hit neither the snuff or the candle, and were congratulated with a loud laugh, while others actually snuffed the candle without putting it out, and were recompensed for their dexterity with numerous hurrahs. One of them, who was particularly expert, was very fortunate and snuffed the candle three times out of seven, while all the other shots either put out the candle or cut it immediately under the light. End of chapter 2